Hello and welcome to Handelsbank and Insights. I'm Sonia Rothwell. On this week's economic update, the government's handling of the economy continues to come under the spotlight as it's announced that the Chancellor will bring forward details of his spending plans. Plus, the Bank of England is restarting its bond buying programme, a sign that earlier interventions haven't worked as planned. What does that tell us about wider risks in the global economy? And we'll have a roundup of developments across the energy sector, including OPEC's decision to limit oil supplies. Joining me is Daniel Marney, Handelsbank and UK's economist. So we're recording this. I feel like I start every single podcast that I'm on with, with this caveat. We're recording this on Monday, the 10th of October, and it's just been announced that the government will bring forward their spending plans to the 31st of October. So that's a good three or four weeks um, ahead of where they originally planned to to uh, announce how they would fund the measures that were announced. How significant do you think this is? I think it's fairly significant because it seems to be an acceptance that uh, due to the market reaction from the mini-budget, they need to bring forward their new plans. I think waiting till no end of November uh, could have could have meant that the market turmoil that we have been seeing uh, would be elongated for longer than would otherwise be the case. I still think there are lots of questions about what's going to be in that fiscal statement, though. One of the big criticisms of the plan was that there were obviously a lot of uh, tax cuts, uh, over £40 billion a year fiscal impact, but there were no uh, spending reductions to match that, nor was there any OBR analysis. Now, it's clear that there will be an OBR analysis accompanying this fiscal statement that's coming up. Uh, That will reassure markets but it's quite difficult to see where the spending restraints are going to come. There's obviously been a lot of talk about whether they would uprate working age benefits in line with earnings rather than inflation. The Prime Minister was clearly minded to to uprate in line with earnings, uh, but there's been a lot of parliamentary rebellion to that, so I don't think that's going to happen. So as I say, it's difficult to see where uh, the spending cuts could come other than from capital expenditure, and if they did decide to row back on that, that would not be great for the supply side agenda that they're advocating for. What would be the impact? Well, I suppose it depends what they would cut. Um, now, just because you do proceed with capital expenditure, that doesn't mean that it's it's going to be productive for the economy. Uh, but I think in terms of, you know, in aggregate, if you compare rowing back on current spending rather than capital spending, you would think that the capital expenditure would be more growth promoting. Uh, you know, because that's typically, you know, looking to promote infrastructure projects and, you know, things that very variously would be better for longer term growth. So if the only thing they row back on is capital expenditure, I don't think that would be particularly great for, as I say, their supply side revolution, which is trying to promote, you know, higher longer term growth rates. You mentioned the uprating of benefits and... Um allies of the Prime Minister have been at pains to point out that she never actually announced which she was in favour of, though obviously there was definitely talk, wasn't there, among among political insiders that she was minded to use the, the, the rate linked to earnings, which is lower than the inflation rate. Do you think that, looking ahead, that that decision is going to be proved to be critical? Well, she was clear about one thing, which is that pensioner benefits would be protected. So, for example, the triple lock on pensions uh, she has committed to. Interestingly, since the coalition years, pensioner benefits have been protected, whereas working age benefits haven't been. So I think what's made a lot of 
parliamentary colleagues uncomfortable is that if they did uprate with earnings uh, rather than inflation on working age benefits, it would entrench that discrepancy that we've seen between curtailments of working age benefits but protection of pensioner benefits. And I don't think that's actually sustainable in the long run. It will be a significant decision, uh, but as I say, I think it's pretty clear that she is going to be forced into a position where she will have to operate in line with inflation. But again, as I say, the question is, where will spending restraint come to try and offset some of those fiscal loosening measures in the, in the mini-budget? We'll have to wait and see. A lot of this seems to be being written as we're recording and, and beyond. Um, and another story which, which emerged this morning was the Bank of England is restarting its bond-buying programme you might remember that a couple of weeks ago, the, the bank had to intervene to prop up the bond market as a direct result of the measures that were announced in the, the mini budget. Can you tell us just briefly, Dan, what the bank is proposing to do and, and what impact that will have? As we know, following the mini budget, there was a lot of market stress in, in the bond market. And there was a particular problem in the long dated uh, bit of the bond market. So the, you know, the 20, 30 year government bond uh, market. So spikes in bond yields at that side of the bond market were so severe and were being prompted obviously by uh, pension funds having to sell off some of these some of these long dated gilts uh, that the Bank of England needs to intervene to try and make the market function better. Now they were quite clear that they were intervening in the market not to suppress the yields per se but just to make sure that the, the market was functioning and not causing wider systemic risks. Now Encouragingly, over the first few days of that programme, the Bank of England didn't have to actually buy that many bonds. So they allocated a maximum of £5 billion bond buying per day, and they didn't get anywhere close to that. Less encouragingly is that what we hear today is that they're, they're seeking to ramp up bond buying. Um, and they've actually lifted that limit to £10 billion per day. That would seem to suggest that the market isn't quite functioning properly at the moment. Um, but just to caveat that again, the overall envelope of, of the intervention was planned to be a ceiling of 65 billion, and the Bank of England still won't meet that 65 billion. But nonetheless, as I say, uh, as soon as the Bank of England stopped buying bonds, it does seem that there is still a bit of market stress in, in the 30-year gilt market, and that's why they're, they're planning in the last few days of the operation to, to buy quite significant numbers. It's easy to, to feel that all this is, is going on in isolation and that it's just the UK which is facing this volatility. Is it right to think that we are alone in, in this struggle with inflation, with, with market turbulence, or is it more widespread? So in terms of the specific issue where the Bank of England had to intervene, I think that is a specific issue with um, pension funds that have been investing in uh, long-dated government bonds. And I think if the bank hadn't intervened there, there would have been significant stresses caused by that. But as you imply in your question, I do think it suggests that there are uh, other risks that could emerge in the global economy. And of course, this is not the first time that a central bank has had to make an intervention in the bond market. Uh, so if we look at the Eurozone, for example, the bank had to, an had to announce an anti-fragmentation tool which they haven't used any resources from, but they announced it to try and alleviate some of the pressures that they were seeing in the bond market, particularly in Italy, um, and particularly trying to make sure that the spread between Italian and government bonds didn't become too wide. Incidentally, that spread is now at 250 basis points again, which is seen as a, a stress point. But if we look at the Eurozone more broadly, what the ECB term as the Euro-era systemic stress 
catchy. indicator. Very catchy. So what it effectively is, it's a broad indicator of, of the kind of stresses that are being seen in money markets, equity markets, bond markets, and also the foreign exchange market. And it's looking at stresses in various markets of those and the systemic risks they could cause to various other markets in the bigger system. So if you look at that, sort of the broad brush measure of that, that is now the highest level since 2011. As, that is, of course, when uh, the euro crisis was, was happening. So one thing to note is that we're not in as bad a position as we, we were then. Um, for example, capital requirements for banks in both the euro area and incidentally in the UK are much higher. So I think the banking system's in a better place to, to counteract some of those stresses. But nonetheless, I think what it shows is that what we've seen in the UK, while there were some specific factors that were behind it, is probably illustrative of some of the problems we could see popping up in various different markets. We did hear a few weeks ago from the World Bank, which predicted that higher interest rates, that is, if governments weren't careful about how they raised interest rates, we could be looking at a recession in 2023. Do you agree with that um, prognosis? I'm going to dodge that question because it's, depending on the institution, they have different views on this. What I would say on the inflation problem more broadly is that we've got US and Eurozone numbers coming out this week, so I think they'll be quite keenly looked at and they'll be probably illustrative of what, what may happen, may be happening with, with the UK rate. But what, what's interesting with the US is that the core inflation rate is still quite stubbornly high. And it does seem, at least in part, to be being driven by domestically led factors. So if you look at wage growth, for example, we're looking at about 6-7% in the US, which is, which is higher than what's compatible with a 2% inflation target. So, um, you know, while when we might come on to this, while some of the external factors that have been pushing up inflation may be moderating a bit, um, it does seem like we are seeing some domestically led pressures, which the Bank of, which not the Bank of England, uh, sorry, the Federal Reserve and other central banks will be alert to. Um, and the traditional way of, of trying to stamp that out is, is, is increasing interest rates. I'm sure we will discuss this after the results come out later this week. We'll discuss it on next week's podcast Meantime, you, you mentioned some of the drivers of inflation and, and one key driver in the UK, at least, has been energy prices. Mm -hmm. Last week, the um, oil cartel OPEC announced mm -hmm. that it was going to restrict supply into the market, which, which obviously is something which is going to push prices up a bit. How significant was that intervention and, and what can we expect to see happen as a result? Are we going to see higher prices at the pump, higher gas prices? Well, in terms of the supply effect, it's only actually about 1% of the global oil supply. So you would think, oh, that's that's not huge. But any changes, however small, in the oil market can actually have a very big impact on price. So in the immediate term, you haven't seen a big spike in global oil prices, but that doesn't mean we won't see it in the future. So I think it is significant that OPEC have, have done this. In terms of what's going on in the gas market, there have been some falls in both spot prices and futures markets. But they are still historically high. So if you look at futures for January and July next year, for example, they're still three or four times the levels that you would have got equivalent if you'd if you'd done those futures in January 2022. The, the problem with projecting, uh, making projections around prices uh, for gas markets is that it's very difficult to forecast what's going to happen with the Russia-Ukraine crisis. 
What we've already seen is that in terms of what's going into uh, the European Union with gas exports, only around one eighth of the supply um, that was going in last year is now going in. And that's primarily because there's nothing going through Nord Stream 1. Now, that obviously has big implications for, for, for energy security across Europe. The rationale why policymakers aren't quite as worried here is because our, our supplies are more secure. So, for example, we produce equivalent about 50% of domestic gas just from, just from the North Sea region. And also in terms of our imports, the majority of those come from Norway, which is quite a obviously reliable partner. And we also get LNG supplies from uh, America and Qatar. But nonetheless, there is a concern uh, that National Grid published recently. Their base case is still for, for security supply to be fine, but in a worst case scenario where there are problems importing um, and, and also producing domestically, uh, there could be the prospect of outages here, which is, which is obviously a concern. Thanks as ever for that. And thank you for listening to Handel's Bank and Insights. If you've liked what you've heard, don't forget to rate us on the app where you're listening because it will help other people find us too. You might also want to share this episode on social media. From me, Sonia Rothwell, see you next time. <laughs>